Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Passover prep learning series. Today, we're going to be doing chapter five and six, God willing, and talking about various allegorical interpretations, including Zohar. And then next week, I plan on doing chapter seven and eight and doing, looking at some contemporary reflections. And it would be a goal for next week to leave some time for reflection and discussion. So before we read some thoughts for review, just sort of overview thoughts, and we've touched on these things, but I think it's worthwhile to kind of touch touch on them again. So reminder, as we said, um, controversy going back to Tanaitic times, Chazal in the second century, as to whether or not Shir Hashirim should be in the canon, right, at all, whether it's considered sacred or not. And this possibly reflects this question of whether it is merely a secular love song, love poetry, or if if it is actually an allegory about the love between God and Israel. So probably, um, or almost certainly, that idea that it's an allegory about the love between God and Israel really goes back to Mishnaic times. Rabbi Akiva, we saw, is the prime defender of the sacredness of Shirashirim, saying that it is the holiest of holies, Kodesh Kodeshim. We assume that standing behind that is his thought that this is allegorical. Um, it correlates with his statement of, and people who sing Shirashirim in a bar, in a banqueting hall, as if it's just love songs, you know, he has the, he, they have no portion in the world to come, right? He condemns them. So he's saying anyone who thinks, uh, it, it seems to suggest that he's saying anyone who thinks that this is just erotic love poetry um, is wrong. He says that much more strongly than is wrong. Um, I, I've been listening to, you know, various Shira Shirim podcasts to try to get more material. There's one in 929, which is an Israeli organization. It's being done by guy Uri, Uri Weil, who's an Israeli um, hip musician. Um, and he pointed out, um, it's interesting, Rabbi Akiva's usage of calling it Kodesh Kodashim. Because, of course, what is the Kodesh Kodashim? The Kodesh Kodashim is the inner shrine of the Beit HaMikdash. So does Rabbi Akiva just mean it's really, really holy? He's just saying it in kind of um, the strongest, most exaggerated language. Or is this somehow a reference to the Kodesh HaKodeshim? Now, what took place in the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies, the inner shrine? So that, remember, that was the place where once a year the high priest entered it is imagined in very concrete terms as god's inner sanctum god's throne room if you will so if there is um some idea already in rabbi akiva's mind about this is an allegory about the connection between God and human beings, between God and Israel. Maybe that's why he, he says Kodesh Kodeshim. The other thing that was in the Kodesh Kodeshim 
was the Kruvim, the cherubim, right? Which were the winged mythical creatures on top of the Aron, the Ark. And there are Midrashim that say, the, um, the Torah says the Kruvim were facing each other and their wings were touching. There are Midrashim that say, I may shock you now, that the Kruvim in the Holy of Holies were entwined in physical congress, I believe would be the polite way of um, um, expressing it. And that when the uh, conquerors came and uh, broke into the temple and contaminated, when they went into the Kodesh HaKodeshim, they were shocked to find that the Kruvim images in the inner sanctum were actually sculpted and depicted, they were sculptures of gold, um, in as two physical beings that were actually physically entwined with each other in an act of Congress, sexual Congress. And they criticized the Jews for this. They saw it as like, oh, this is what the Jews have, Kodesh, Kodeshim, smut, right? So it's that Midrash, it's an expression of sexual union um, as being the, maybe the most intense and deepest manner of contact. And maybe that's why it's used as a metaphor for contact between humans and God. We'll come back to that. So just a thought about that, which I guess I say in the next paragraph there, if you could scroll up a bit, Rabbi Schatz, why might a story about love between two people being used as a metaphor for love between humans and God? So consider the thought that love, romance, passion, sexuality are somehow representative or emblematic of the deepest human capacity or need for intimacy, connection, companionship, commitment. And maybe that's why a story about human love and Eros is used as a metaphor or a symbol for the story of either B'nai Israel as a whole or the individual longing to cleave to God. And we'll read some examples of that in our text today. Question, just a reminder, as we read, Shira Shirim clearly does not have a straightforward plot in the way that we would think of a narrative story has a plot, but where do we discern that there's something plot-like trajectory, some drama, um, so that it's not just one love poem after another? Um, most people do discern some kind of trajectory into it, in it, although there are lots of different interpretations of that. Tensions in the song to just remember and bear in mind. We've seen these before. It's just a reminder. King and shepherd, right? Which is high class and simple class. Um, the confined city life with all these people versus the countryside where um, the couple could be together. Uh, society, the court, my mother's house, my brothers, the watchman the daughters of Jerusalem, right? Versus just a couple being out in nature with the, the, the flowers and the uh, plants and the birds chirping. 
uh, the royal court versus the commoners. When I say versus, I don't mean fighting. I just mean tension, right? Obstacles are fulfillment. We've seen already several obstacles, right? Um, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't interfere. Uh, I went and looked for him at night. He was gone. The watchman found me and beat me. So this is not a simple story of I find my, my love. We get together. We live happily ever after. Yay. The end. It is not a Hollywood rom-com kind of love story. Right? There are obstacles. Maybe there's fulfillment, as we saw at the beginning of chapter five, where we read it. Longing for fulfillment. Right? There's a tension between seeking and finding. Is the love story about seeking or is the love story about finding? They're glimpses of finding. They're together. They see each other. They see each other's bodies. Their bodies are in contact. But there's a lot of longing, seeking, separation. Um, also, what Uri Weil cited in that uh, lesson that I listened to, he quoted Rabbi Yaakov Medan, who's a uh, Torah teacher in um, Israel, who said, um, is the love, the male, which is spelled dod, which is dalid vav dalid, which is ex- spelled exactly the same way as David. Is there a balance or tension between David and Shlomo? Not the actual historical figures, right? But dod connotes David, David as the shepherd who's roaming all over the land of Israel, fleeing from King Saul, right? Young, charismatic, attractive versus Shlomo, who is the enthroned potentate with all the pomp of the court. His his litter that gets carried where all the maidens of Jerusalem have been, his hundreds of wives, um, his, his banqueting hall. Um, so again, so all sorts of, uh, I'm going to call them uh, tensions to consider when reading. Rabbi Schatz, if we'll scroll down, please. Just to review the key words in the Hebrew, the ra'ayah is the woman, the dod is the man, ahava meaning love is the way we use it pretty much in English, and dodim meaning lovin'. Okay, here we are, chapter five. The man speaks. Now we finish with this last time. I added chapter five. I added verse one to what we studied last time, you'll remember, because I said, this is the suggestion of um, perhaps the um, consummation of the relationship in the middle of the book, not at the end of the book, interestingly. We'll come back to that point next week. Um, So, and notice the Samech at the end of the first verse, which I've represented as dash, dash, dash in English, which means in the traditional scribal writing of Shir Hashirim, in a scroll or in the traditional Jewish Masoretic text, there's a pause, a gap in the line, which means that our traditional Jewish handers down of the text thought that we pause here, meaning chapter five, verse one, is actually connected to what went before and not connected to chapter five, verse two. Okay, unclear to me why the Christian chapter and that actually seems pretty obvious because near the end of chapter four she said she said come into my garden and then chapter five verse one he says i have come into the garden and i have eaten my fill and then some voice says eat lovers and drink 
deep and be drunk on love. It seems to totally fit together. So it's really not at all clear to me why the medieval Christian chapter verse inventors decided to put this verse as the beginning of a new chapter. So we're going by, so I'm including it here. He says, I've come to my heart in my own, my bride. I have plucked my myrrh and spice, eaten my honey and honeycomb, drunk my wine and my milk. He seems to be satisfied with a consummation, right? In response to her invitation, come into my garden. And then the comment, editorial comment, eat friends or lovers, drink and get drunk of lovemaking. And then we're totally somewhere else. Again, this is what makes us say, you know, where's the plot? Is this a, a, a collection? How do we jump from verse one to verse two? All of a sudden, in verse two, the woman is home alone in bed in her home. I'm asleep, but my heart is wakeful. Kol do which can either mean hark, my lover knocks, or I hear the sound of my lover knocking. And then she says what he, she hears him say. Let me in, my own, my darling, my perfect dove, for my head is drenched with dew, my, my locks with the damp of night. So he's outside at night and he's saying, let me in. Um, so she's in bed at night. So this raises possibilities, questions. Is this happening in reality? Is she really in bed? Is she in bed at night and is he really knocking at the door? Is this her fantasy, which is something that people do in bed at night? Last I checked. I'm a psychiatrist. People tell me all kinds of things. Um, is this a dream? Okay. So she hears him saying, let me in. I'm outside. The way, um, uh, we're not going to talk about this at length, but some of the physical images of the male um, in Song of Songs are picked up by the Kabbalah, and then uh, the liturgy picks them up from the Kabbalah. And in Anim Zemirot, Anim Zemirot, Vishiri Merot, Arog, that piyut, or liturgical poem that is said in some synagogues, some of the images that are used there of God are taken from Shir Hashirim via the Kabbalah. It's a Kabbalistic poem. And this one about God's curly locks is in Animus Mira. Resise Laila. Okay. Kivutzot, it's Kivutzotav Resise Laila. His locks are damp with the night. Um, is comes from this verse. Okay. So now the woman is either saying or thinking, you know, I'm in bed already. I took my clothes off, right? I took my robe. Should I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Should I get them dirty again? She's going to put her feet on the ground. They're going to get dirty again. She's like in bed already. My beloved took his hand off the latch and my heart was stirred for him. Rabbi Schatz, could you scroll down, please? Thanks. I wrote a little more. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Good. I rose to let in my beloved, my hands dripped myrrh, my fingers flowing myrrh. She's got perfume on her hands. 
upon the handles of the bolt, reaching for the door. I opened the door for my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. Now, again, this is this really raises that it's a dream rather than a reality. This is very dreamlike, right? She hears him calling. He's outside. I imagine that I went there. Either she dreamt that he was calling. She actually went to the door and he's not there. Or she's dreaming the whole thing, right? I'm just leaving it out of question mark. I was faint because of what he said. I sought but found him not. I called, but he did not answer. He's gone. So she goes out. I met the watchmen who patrolled the town. They struck me. They bruised me. The guards of the walls stripped me of my mantle. So remember, she's saying, um, uh, oh, I'm a little out of sync there. Don't worry about it. She's saying, should I put my coat on? And this is now the coat, right? That she said, should I put it on or not? They're stripping it off her. I adjure you, O maidens of Jerusalem, if you meet my beloved, tell him this that I am faint with love. I think this is the third time out of four that we have had the address to the maidens of Jerusalem. Um, They say, I left it in black, but I should change it to blue. A lot of typos, a lot of typos here. Okay, Um, so it's really, uh, Rabbi Schatz is gonna change it for me in the Hebrew and the English, thank you, right? They're saying, they say, hey, So she says, hey, if you see him, tell him I love him so much. They say, what is so special about this guy, right? How is your beloved better than another, O fairest of women? Is your beloved better than another that you adjure us so? Again, adjure fancy English for make us take this oath. She replies, my beloved is clear skinned and ruddy, preeminent among 10,000. His head is finest gold. His locks are curled and black as a raven. Kavutso Tav Taltalim Shechorot. That's also in uh, Anim's Mirot. Uh, his eyes are like doves by water courses, bathed in milk set by a brimming pool. By the way, it's interesting how we have the, the, these literary images, and it's 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 not exactly logical, right? The doves bathed in milk means the doves are pure white, correct? But they're by the water courses, which are water and not milk, right? So they're by the fountain, they've been bathed white, or like they bathed in a pure white fountain, and now they're by the watercourses. His cheeks are like beds of spices, banks of perfume. His lips are like lilies, they drip flowing myrrh. She's going on and on. His hands are rods of gold studded with beryl, his belly a tablet of ivory. He is ripped, we would say. He's got the six pack, right? Adorned with sapphires. His legs are like marble pillars set in sockets of fine gold. He is majestic as Lebanon, stately as the cedars. Lebanon is used as an epithet for the cedars of Lebanon, which are these tall, tall trees which grow only outside Eretz Israel. When uh, David built his palace and when Solomon built his palace and the temple in Jerusalem, they imported cedars from Lebanon because it's a taller, better wood than anything that grows in Israel itself. His mouth is delicious and all of him is delightful. Such is my blessing. So she's to all this long thing, which is the answer of what's so special about him. By the way, I just want to point out, just to mention, none of it says because he's kind, because he's nice, because he really loves me, right? It's all This is the passion turn on of physical appearance. 
His mouth is delicious and all of him is delightful. Such is my beloved, such is my darling, O maidens of Jerusalem. Mara asks, who are the maidens of Jerusalem? Mara, we said before, they're, they're some sort of chorus. We don't know who they are. They're the other people looking on. They're presumably her girlfriends. By the way, in the, um, um, we're not, we didn't see any of the Midrashim that say what I'm about to tell you, but in the traditional Midrashim, like Yashirim Rabbah, which we looked at last week, um, uh, which interpret everything allegorically, sometimes maidens of Jerusalem is interpreted to mean the angels, okay, like the angels who live up there, right? There's God, right? The Dod is God. The Raya is Israel. So who could Yerushalayim possibly be? It's the angels, right? Or there's another Midrashic interpretation that the Benot Yerushalayim are the nations of the world, the Gentiles. The Gentiles saying to Israel, how come you're so hung up on your God? Right, the Midrash says this. They say to Israel, we conquered you. Why don't you come worship our gods? Why are you still longing for your God who couldn't protect you and allowed your temple to be destroyed? And Israel replies, this is why my God is unique and different than your gods. Okay, so various understandings. But the Pshat, they're just, again, I'm going to put it in quotes, the Greek chorus. They're sometimes commenting, asking. They're the ones who are the outsiders um, in this relationship. They're not necessarily entirely unsympathetic outsiders. The watchmen are unsympathetic outsiders. The brothers who force me to guard other vineyards so that I don't guard my own vineyard, they are um, less sympathetic, right? But the Benot Yerushalayim are sort of neutral others. That's chapter five. Let's go on to chapter six. Rabbi Schatz, if you will reshare. I'll pause for questions about this after chapter six. I just reformatted it a little bit so that the lines match up. Line up, okay. Yeah, all right. So chapter six. Um, unclear who is speaking. I put it in black. Um, it's, I guess it, it's probably the daughters of Jerusalem, right? Because that's who she was speaking to. And there is no samach. There is no pause in the traditional text between the end of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six. So it stands to reason they're now responding. Okay, you convinced us. Where did he go, Right. Like, which way did he, you asked us to look for him, keep an eye on which way did he go? So whether, whither has your beloved gone, O fairest of women? Whither has your beloved turned? Let us seek him with you. We'll help you find him. She says something that is not particularly practically useful. I saw him go left and then he turned right. So this is now when we're back in the realm of poetry my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to pick lilies. Again, the reason I say this isn't, doesn't seem particularly concrete and useful in answer is because she's now back in poetry land. Presumably picking the garden is a metaphor for their intimacy. Okay. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. He browses among the lilies, or he who browses 
among the lilies. And um, in many Jewish weddings, um, if we want to be sort of egalitarian and give the bride something to say to the groom if she gives him a ring, this is one of the popular things that is said, anila dodivi It's also pretty easy for nervous brides to be able to say. There are other other formulas they could use, which are longer and more complicated. Some people have it put on their ring. Some people have it put on their ketubah. They have it put on the kiddush cup, which was a gift for their engagement or their wedding or something like that. I am my, I am my lovers and my lover is mine. Okay. Um, now he speaks and there's a samech. Notice there's a pause. So did she go out? Did she find him? Is it just another poem? Okay, he speaks. You are beautiful, my Raya, as Tirzah. Tirzah is a palace city in northern Israel. So presumably it's a beautiful city or a beautiful palace. And Jerusalem, of course, is the palace city of southern Israel, right? After the kingdom of Israel split, um, I will not make Rabbi Schatz say what year that was in but it was in 928 BCE was when the Northern and Southern kingdom split after Solomon died. Right. So Tirzah was the palace city in the Northern kingdom. Jerusalem is the palace city in the Southern kingdom. They're the capitals. So you are as beautiful as Tirzah, my beautiful, my darling, beautiful as Jerusalem, awesome as bannered hosts. Turn your eyes away from me. He says, for they overwhelm me. It's like, I cannot bear your glance. Okay. It destroys, you, you, you look at me like that with your eyes, you slay me. That's what he's saying, right? Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down from Gilad. Again, goats in Eretz Israel are usually dark haired. They are black or brown. They're streaming down, okay? Your teeth are like a flock of ewes climbing up from the washing pool, which means if they just climbed up from the washing pool, they are what color? Shout it out. White. So she has, again, we saw this earlier. She's got good teeth, right? All of them bear twins. She's got white, symmetric teeth, and not one of them loses her young. She's not missing a single tooth. Your brow behind your veil gleams like a pomegranate split open. We said this before. We've had this word raka. It might mean brow. It might mean cheek. Right. We don't really know. And then if we could scroll down, please, a little more. He's still talking. The guy, Rabbi Schatz, scroll down. She's frozen. I don't know. She's thinking about, are you all frozen? Am I frozen? You're you're frozen to me, but I'm scrolling. Can you not okay. see me scrolling? I can't. I got frozen. Okay. Oh. All right. That's okay. I have a text. Um, if you can't hear me, say, I can't hear you. If I freeze, no. Okay. Um, let me just find it. Um, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and damsels without number. I think you want to insert here, but only one is my dove, my perfect one, the only one of her mother, the delight of her who bore her. Maidens see and acclaim her, queens and concubines, and pray her, and, and praise her. So is this shepherd saying, oh, there's so many princesses, concubines, I don't care about any of them, you are unique. Is King Solomon saying, I have 700 
queens and 300 concubines, but you are unique. Okay. Then someone speaks. I have it in black. It's possible that it's the Greek chorus or the anonymous uh, narrator. It's possible that it is the man. Not clear. Notice at the end of the blue via hallelujah, there's a samich there, which I, again, I put as dash, 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 um, which means the, the scroll writing tradition thinks that you pause there, right? So the tradition is you pause there, which seems to suggest they don't think this is a continuation of what the man is saying. They think this is a separate thing, okay? Mizo tanishkafa kemo shachar. Who is this? Who is she that shines through like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, radiant as the sun, awesome as bannered hosts? By the way, usually in Bible literature, when you have the sun and moon, then you have the stars. So are the bannered hosts the hosts of heaven? Are they actually like the stars? She's shining like the sun. She's beautiful as the moon. She's shining like the stars. So someone is asking this, who is that amazing woman? What they're saying. Then the woman speaks. Again, we seem to have some uh, metaphor. Rabbi Schatz, can you people still hear me? You're all frozen, so I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. we can hear you. Great, great. Some metaphor for um, desire, erotic desire, desire for connection. Elginat egos yaradati. I went down to the nut grove to see the budding of the veil, veil being valley, nachal, to see if the vines had blossomed, if the pomegranates were in bloom. So she wants to see, is it spring? Things are budding. Is it time? There's a lot of stuff in Song of Songs about the right time. Is it time yet? Are things fully in bud yet? The woman saying to the daughters of Jerusalem, chapter one or chapter two, don't interfere or do anything until love is ready. So there's this question of, are things ripe? Are the, is the vegetation ripe? Is love ripe? Um, again, the Shior that I heard yesterday said, um, in love as, and relationships, as in many other things, um, timing is really crucial. And if you do the right thing with the wrong timing, then it's the wrong thing. So she wants to see, are things in bloom? Before I knew it, my desire set me mid the chariots of Ami Nadiv. <laughs> Many commentators talk about what does that mean? And I think I'm actually not going to go into that because it's going to take too long and I want to go elsewhere. So she's out. We end chapter six with um, who is this out there? Who is that beautiful woman? And she says, I went down to see if things are budding. And before you knew it, I found myself somewhere among some chariots. Um, and there is no Samach here. So this is not a natural pause point in the story, um, according to our traditional Jewish scroll writers but we're going to pause here because it's the end of chapter six. Okay. Um, before I go on with some midrashic material and interpretive material, I just want to pause 
and say, Rabbi Schatz, could you scroll through the chat and see if there are any questions that yeah. seem like they should be asked now? I believe that you answered all the questions, at least that I can see. Um, so if anybody sent you private questions, I don't know, but all the public questions you ended up answering. I don't know because my screen is frozen. Great. Okay. And there are no questions. Okay. <laughs> so as we said last week, and I we did ask a question that didn't right. get answered. Go ahead, please. Yeah, which was please. the section that got black, that was black that you changed to blue earlier on. Yes. It yes. seemed to me that that was actually not clearly the man. It could well have been the choir also. So I'm just wondering why you decided. Which to... one? Sorry, could you tell me what that line is? You have to back up and look at it. I can't. I don't have yeah. the text in front of me. But... Oh, okay. Uh... That one, I think. It was, it's chapter five, verse one, two, three, four. Tell me what it says. Tell me the words. Oh, how is your beloved better than another, O fairest of women? How is your beloved better than another that you adjure us so? Did I change that to blue? Oh, that shouldn't be blue. That should be black. It's the, cor it's the chorus. It's Benot Yerushalayim. I don't think that was Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. Did I change that? If I did, I made a mistake. No, no, no. That's the chorus. That's the daughters of Jerusalem. Okay, sorry. Okay, so as we said last week, and we looked at this in Shira Shirim Rabbah, um, the Jewish traditional tradition of interpretation of Shira Shirim is this is allegory, okay? And there are a number of different approaches to what kind of allegory. And again, allegory means A doesn't mean A, it means X, and B means Y, and C means Z. This is a code to talk about something else. The, um, the most common understanding of how that allegory works is it is historical allegory. It's a story about the history of the Jewish people and their relationship to God. And we looked at this in the Midrash last week. Mm -hmm. And we saw a Midrashim that said, oh, this, this thing and that thing in the story alludes to Egypt, Sinai, exile, the patriarchs, Moses and Aaron, sanctuary, Right. And we have many more things like that. And um, Rashi, in his introduction um, to his commentary to Shir Hashirim, makes that very clear. I thought it'd be worth reading this passage. He says, Rashi says, um, uh, and you're on page six in my. You're, you're, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And it seems to me that Solomon foresaw by means of the Holy Spirit that Israel would suffer exile after exile, destruction after destruction, and would lament in exile for their former glory and would recall the early love between them and God when they were uniquely treasured of all nations, saying, meaning Israel would say in exile, I should return to my first husband for I was better off then than now. And they would recall God's devotion to them and the faithlessness which they displayed and the good things that he said would befall them in the end of days. So B'nai Israel in exile, being punished by God, right, by their husband, would remember their youthful love and all the promises that God made. And they would say, you know what? I really should, should return to God. Okay. So Solomon established this book by means of the Holy Spirit using the metaphor of a woman bound in lifelong widowhood, longing for her husband, pining for her lover, recollecting her youthful love for him and confessing her transgression. Please take me back. That's what she's saying. So her lover suffers along in her suffering, 
and recollects her youthful devotion and her beauty and her excellent deeds, which caused him to be bound to her with a powerful love, telling her that he did not torment her willingly, and her divorce is not a permanent divorce, for she is still his wife, and he is still her husband, and he will return to her eventually. Rashi, writing in the late 1100s in France, after he had studied in Germany, right, is the era leading up to the Crusades and the Crusades. Rashi, in general, is a total rah-rah cheerleader for the Jewish people who needed cheerleading at that time because uh, they were very downtrodden in Ashkenaz. And um, so his historical interpretation of it is later generations, meaning now us in 11th century Franco-Germany, right? Long to return to our original husband who loved us long ago and who promised us all of these great things for the future and has promised to us, even though you're in exile now, right? The metaphor being divorce, this is not permanent. You are my true wife. Okay. Um, uh, Let's do a couple more Rashi's. The Song of Songs Concerning Solomon. Our sages taught whenever Shlomo is mentioned in Song of Songs for the sages, which means the Talmudic sages, wondered if this literally refers to Solomon, why isn't he referred to by his patronymic as in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes? In other words, Proverbs says, Mishle Shlomo ben David. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David. If we were mentioning an actual person, why doesn't it really identify him the way it does in his other books? Therefore, it must not mean actual Solomon. And this is what we read in the Midrash last week. Whenever it says Shlomo, this means God. Melech Shehashalom Shalom, the king who possesses peace. This song is above all of the songs which were spoken about God by his community and nation, the Jewish people. So we have the irony here, by the way, that Rashi said in his introduction, right? This is the song that this book was written prophetically by Solomon. But he says in his comment to Shira Shirim Asher Shlomo, that that does not mean Song of Songs by Solomon. It means Song of Songs concerning Shlomo, meaning God, right? This is the highest of poems, which is about God. Um, I like this one, the next Rashi. Yishakeni min shikot pihu, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is what she sings in her exile and widowhood. Oh, that King Solomon, meaning God, would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth as he used to. In some places, Rashi tells us, people kiss the hand or the shoulder, but I long and pine for him to treat me as he did formerly, like a groom and bride, mouth to mouth. By the way, um, Sa'adja, who's another earlier medieval commentator, Gaonic commentator, talks about um, when he says... um, Drinking, the metaphor of drinking the wine, Sa'adya says, Sa'adya and the commentators on Sa'adya say, this is like lovers who kiss with mouths open. Sorry, just alert. Um, Explicit alert. Kiss with mouths open, one putting their tongue into the mouth of the other and enjoy drinking each other's 
spittle. I believe in English, we call it swap and spit. Okay. <laughs> so, so Saadia says when it says, oh, drinking your wine, that which tastes so sweet, that means swap and spit, which is sweeter than wine. This is how lovers kiss, says Saadia in the year like 800 and something, just in case you think sex was only invented recently. Right. <laughs> okay. So that's historical allegory. And we saw a bunch of them last week in Shirashirim Rabbah. And Rashi and many of the other medieval commentators just quote stuff from Shirashirim Rabbah. There's also, and I mentioned this briefly last week, something called philosophical allegory, right? So philosophy was very big in Jewish thought in the Middle Ages. I know very little about it, so I'm not going to talk about it at great length. Um, but uh, Ibn Ezra criticizes it. He says in his introduction, thus says Avram ben Rabmeir of Spain, meaning me, Ibn Ezra, the investigators or the philosophers attempted to interpret this book to be an allegory about the mysteries of the universe, describing how the supernal soul combines with the body. For the philosophers, it's about the individual who is the woman, the individual soul longing to merge with the world soul, which is pure intelligence. Don't ask me exactly what that means, um, but that's kind of what it is. And others, other philosophers, interpret it to be about the constituent elements of the universe. Medieval philosophers were very interested in how the soul was put together, what are its constituent parts, how the body was put together, what were its constituent parts, what was the role of the spheres or the stars in the running of the universe, what was the role of God, which they saw to be the, the primal intelligence outside of everything. I think that's what he means about constituents of the universe. All these interpretations, say Ibn Ezra, are carried away by the wind, for they are hevel, the word that is used in Ecclesiastes to mean empty or vanities or nothingness. Hevel havalim, absurd, ridiculous, right? So he says there's some people, investigators, in the Middle Ages, they thought of them as scientists, right? Because they didn't really have science, experimental science the way we did. A lot of science was philosophy, Right. So these philosophers, they think Shirashirim is an allegory for all these kinds of things. All of that is ridiculous. He says the truth is only what our forebearers interpreted, that this book is about the Jewish people. Right. So Ibn Ezra says there are people who say that Shirashirim is philosophical allegory. They are totally wrong. This is just historical allegory. So that's all I want to say about philosophical allegory. I have some commentaries on Shirashirim that contain examples of philosophical allegory. But, but as I said, I don't know anything about it. I don't really understand it. So um, uh, I'm not going to attempt to share it with you. I also think that it in general does not really speak to people nowadays very much. We're going to have a little bit of Kabbalistic allegory. So there's mystical allegory that this is not about, the, sorry, the mystical allegorical approach is not that this is about history, Egypt and exile and Moses and Aaron, but rather this is about either the Jewish people's longing to come in contact with and merge with God in medieval Kabbalah. You can't actually merge with God. 
as opposed to some other mystical systems where the goal is actually to merge. You want to come as close as you can, right? Um, and this is something that can be done by Israel as a whole or the individual as a whole. So the individual desires to cleave to, right, um, uh, God as much as possible. Um, medieval Kabbalah in the Zohar also has all kinds of theories about, I'm going to call it, the flow of divine energy within the Godhead. God has different, I'm going to put it in air quotes, parts or components or phases or moods, and we're able to come in contact with only some of them and not others of them. It's very complicated, and without making it a whole, without a lot of background and diagrams, I wouldn't be able to um, explain it. So I've picked a couple of passages that you don't need to know too much about Kabbalah to kind of get the gist. The gist. Okay, one commentator, Rabbi Azriel of Garona, who was one of Ramban's teachers, but his commentary was commonly attributed to Ramban, Nachmanides. So Azriel, I don't know, he's probably 1200s would be a guess, 1100s. Um, the kiss, we're back on verse two, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. What is a kiss? Is a metaphor <clears throat> for the soul's pleasure in cleaving to the source of light and the word for cleaving is a technical term of Kabbalah. It's devekut or lehidavek. It means to come as close as possible to merging without actually merging because the party line in Judaism is you can't actually merge with God. But it's the soul's drive to as much as possible, cleave to the source of life and the extraordinary Holy Spirit and the emanated light expands only from, that means by means of wine. So wine, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for his kisses are sweeter than wine. Wine is also a metaphor. Metaphor for the higher supernal light, which seeks only to ascend and cleave. Okay? So my kiss is I want to cleave to God. Okay? And I'm able to partially approach this through the vehicle of wine, which is a higher, some light above. It's not God. It's some higher level. And the words, your love is better, right? Meaning your love is better than the wine. This is the flow and abundance of the shining light, which sparkles in all directions. As the Torah says, when Aaron dresses the lamps of the menorah in the tabernacle, which we just had in our Parsha a couple of weeks ago, sorry, I forgot to include the source, which is translated into Aramaic as when Aaron lights. So this is a typical Midrashic um, play on words that tovim, the word tov, is the same root that's used for Aaron to dress the lamps. And the Aramaic Targum or translation of Aaron dressing the lamps of Behetivo means to light. So that's why tovim in Song of Song means light. Okay. You're that um, I, I'm, I'm, I seek to have the kiss or the cleaving by means of light. I want to get in touch with the light that emanates from God. And this is also the meaning of from Genesis and God saw the light, Vayar Elohim et Haor Ki Tov, right? The light of the first day. So Tov, goodness, means light. 
It is flow. It's a metaphor of flow of divine energy from God. Um, and the individual in the guise of the woman. Oh, I have an interpretation, which I wrote yesterday. So it's more clear than what I'm saying now. The soul longs to cleave to the effulgence of God. Effulgence means the rays of light coming out, also called the light or the good. Good means light that shines in all directions. And the verse speaks of the individual soul's thirst to cleave to God. So this is not about Israel as a group. This is about the individual. I want to get as close to God as possible. God is tov, which means flow of light. And the nishika that I want is, I the kiss is, I long to connect with that flow of light. So that is kind of a typical kind of, I'm going to call it a mystical allegorical interpretation, which is um, used, which is based partly on a um, midrashic pun. From the Zohar, I have two more passages that use plays on words. I'm just going to, I won't be able to read through them all. You can look through them later, but I just want to explain them to you. So on page nine, Moshcheni acharecha narutza, draw me after you. The king has brought me to our chambers, right? The the root, shachen, draw me after you, is also the same root of the word shechina, God's indwelling in our world. Same word as mishkan, the tabernacle, which is the place for God's shechina. And the same root that also is in the Aramaic, the Hebrew and Aramaic word Mashkon, which means a pledge. It's something you give as a pledge on a loan to make sure that you will repay the loan. So here we have a passage that says, Mashach me after you means God placed the Shekhinah in Israel's presence. She is an emanation of the Holy Mother shielding us. For those who are into Kabbalah, Mother is probably Bina, one of the upper of the ten spherot, and Bina is related to um, Malchut, which is the Shechina. And if you don't understand what I just said, just totally ignore it. Okay. So um, there's an emanation of a female aspect of God, the Holy Mother, and she sends down an emanation of herself, also female representation, which is the Shechina. This is God's presence in our midst. And this is the guarantee or pledge that God will never um, abandon us. Okay. So draw me after you in this verse, God, in this verse is us, B'nai Israel, saying, God has given us the Shechina in the Mishkan, which is a Mashkon. Okay. And that is the thing that ensures that we, in some magnetic fashion, will always be drawn after God. Did everyone follow that? What did I write? The Godhead bestows the Holy Mother from above in the form of the divine indwelling below. This is a guarantee that God does not abandon us, meaning we are always connected to God. And this is how God draws us to ensure that we will run after him. So it's like God sends down, I'll just make a, 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 physics analogy here, 
like magnetic rays that attract us. And this ensures that we will always follow God. Okay. And the second one, also from the same place in the Zohar, Narutza, also a play on words. Um, again, this is sort of total Midrashic style. They'll see a word in the text and they'll link it to other places in the Bible where that word is or other meanings of that word from other places in the tradition, and they'll connect them. Um, there's a fancy term for this, intertextuality. It means you get this text to comment on my text. What is narutza? Let's run. So it's from the root roots, okay? Um, I have it wrong here. I got to fix that. I say that roots is from Reish Tzadi Hey. It's not. It's Reish Vav Tzadi, but it's very close to Reish Tzadi Hey, which means to accept favorably about a sacrifice. So Narutza, let's run after you, means may we be favored by you. Okay. And it's also connected to this, the word used about who did they hurry from the pit in Genesis 41? Who was rushed from the pit? Anyone can shout it out. Joseph. Joseph. When the, when the, the, the cupbearer said, hey, I remember a dream interpreter I met in prison. So they rush him from the pit. And a Midrashic comment from elsewhere, what does it mean they rush him? Is they spoke favorably to him. Right, the prisoner who's been in the pit for a couple of years, they said to him, hey, calm down. You're going to go meet Pharaoh. Don't stress about it. It'll all be okay. Okay. So it means to, again, pleasing words of goodwill because he had been depressed because he had been in jail. Therefore, Narutza, may we be favored with total acceptance. Right. Um, and then you will draw me after me. You. So we will run after you. Interpretation means may we be pleasing to you or favored by you, God. You favor us, God, and we will run after you. So it's a two-way thing. God is Ritze, us. God favors us. We are Narutz. We are running after God. Again, we are in relationship with God and connected with God. Whereas the first comment from the Zohar I brought you, the last one, was about the individual soul. This is more about the Jewish people as a whole. Or the first one was about the individual soul and the Jewish people. This is really clearly about the Jewish people, Okay. Um, you favor us, right? Then we will run after you. And so this is a comment that says this line in Song of Songs about um, the girl, the woman, young woman saying, may a lover pull me after you, pull me along and I will we'll run together. It doesn't mean that, okay? It means God you favor me, you favor us, B'nai Israel, and that is something that draws us to you and makes sure that we are attached to you in a permanent bond, okay? Or Moshcheni, God, you send the Shechina, your presence down to us, and that pulls the individual or B'nai Israel to be attached to you. So um, these are a couple of examples of what I would call mystical allegory. They're not historical allegory. So we had several examples here of um, the traditional interpretive framework of Song of Songs. We started with Midrash last week from the rabbinic period, and these are all medieval sources that we looked at, 
this week of how this allegorical understanding of uh, Shir Hashirim plays out. Um, and we considered historical allegory, philosophical allegory, and mystical allegory. Next week, I anticipate we'll read chapters seven and eight, and we will look at how some modern commentators seek to, I'm going to say, reclaim the pshat without throwing out the drosh. Or maybe some of them do want to throw out the drosh. Certainly some of the secular Israelis want to throw out the drosh, right? Um, But from Talmudic times through medieval times, the pshat was really underemphasized. Yes, it seems like it's a story about lovers, but what it's really about is dot, dot, dot. Whereas moderns are much more, and even, even religious and even orthodox moderns are more apt to say, but let's not ignore the pshat. Let's not ignore the manifest meaning of the text and say that this isn't about human lovers it's only about Jewish history. Rashi would say it's only about Jewish history. The traditional Jewish tradition um, for centuries was clearly not super comfortable with contemplating concretely the eros and physicality of this Megillah, but moderns have sought to um, not, shy away, uh, not shy away from that physicality and have um, done some degree of reclaiming. So I think that's what we'll look at next week. Great. Rabbi Schatz, does that wrap it up here at 1.02 p.m.? It does. Thank you so much for another lovely week. Sorry that we cannot see your face, but uh, we followed along and it was great learning. So thank you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.